we've been walking through uh, this theological equipping semester, uh, biblical themes. We want to see, as we say every single week, that the Bible isn't just a bunch of random religious stories or 66 religious books that we compiled to make, you know, Christians religious book. You know, Islam has the Quran, Christians have the Bible. That's not what's happening. Rather, the Bible is one story that is ultimately about God's glorious son. And when we see that reality, that everything is about him, that he is why we have breath, that we could worship his glorious name. We have a beating heart so that we could look to him and find our life completely in him and that one day every knee will bow to him. Once we see that wonderful reality, everything about our lives will perfectly fall into place. We will stop foolishly living as if we are the point. We'll stop being so obsessed with ourselves because we'll see we're not the point. We exist for him, not the other way around. And so we want to see that. We want to see the scriptures, what they're truly about. We want to see the the macro story of the scriptures so that when you're reading the micro stories of the scriptures, you you can see how they fit in. And then ultimately, the, the reason you exist to enjoy Jesus Christ, we might see as we see the story is about him. So that's what this semester is meant to do. That's the goal of over and over and over again, almost in a glorious, redundant way. We start in Genesis and we end in Revelation and we say, here's how the Bible is about Jesus, no matter the theme that we're looking at. That's the goal of this semester. And today, as we've looked at the kingdom and covenant and beauty and the serpent crusher and all these different themes, we're going to look at another uh, two themes that are, that are forever locked Together, the theme of justice and mercy, something that is absolutely everywhere in the scriptures. But a theme, I'll admit, as we've looked at these different themes, it's a bit of a unique theme because we're not just following a storyline when we look at the themes of justice and mercy. Rather, we're looking at something that is very near to God's heart. We're looking at something that actually reveals God's character. You could say that the story of justice and mercy in the scriptures is really the story of how God interacts with sinful man. The story of justice and mercy is really the story of how God interacts with sinful man. You have a God who is infinitely holy and wonderful and glorious, and perfect, and you have man that were scooped from the dirt and sculpted to praise his wonderful, holy glory. That picture in Isaiah 6 where you see the angels, the seraphim, surrounding God, crying out all day long, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. That's why God scooped dirt and made Adam, that we might join in that praise. And instead of joining in that praise, you and I say, holy, holy, holy am I. I am glorious. I am wonderful. I am God. I'll determine what is right and wrong. Thank you very much. And there's the problem of the universe. A truly holy God who is wonderful and glorious an unbelievably wicked man who has rebelled against this wonderful God. And so now God has a choice. He can justly and righteously pour out his punishment on man. And he would be completely right for doing so. He would be just. He would display his justice in punishing wicked rebellion. Or he can be merciful. And he can pardon wicked man. That is... 
the story that we will follow in the scriptures. What is God going to do? Is he going to perfectly, justly, righteously punish man for his unbelievable, high-handed, wicked sin? Or will he be merciful and pardon the sinner? That is what we will look at today. And again, I want to just sit here before we jump into Genesis 1 because we're not just looking at a story when we trace these themes. We are getting at, we're getting a glimpse of God's character. God's heart. When we see God being either justice or just or merciful, we're getting a glimpse into his heart. We'll see, as you see in your notes there, God is perfectly just. One of the things that makes God unique in the ancient world compared to all the other so-called gods is that he is just. All the other gods of the ancient world, the false gods, the so-called gods, Baal, Asherah, can all be bought off. You want them to do something for you, you just sacrifice your kids or something. They can be bought off with a bribe, right? They're corrupt. They're powerful, but they're corrupt. Not so with Yahweh. With Yahweh, with God, we see things like this. Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner and gives him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 32, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And I won't read the rest of those. By the way, your notes are very long with a lot of verses that I won't read because we'd be here until 9 p.m. But I I wanted to just saturate you with how loud this theme is screamed in the scriptures. So God, our God, the true living God, is not like the false gods of the ancient world who can be bought off, who are powerful but wicked, who can be bribed. Rather, he is just. He is righteous. He hates a bribe. And because that is who he is, he loves it when his people do justice. Isaiah 61, look there. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Because it's near to his heart. He wants his people to do justice. He hates robbery. He hates wickedness. He hates unbalanced scales. Another thing that is unique in the ancient world is God being merciful. So his justice, his perfect justice is unique in the ancient world. So is his perfect mercy. The other gods, if you cross them, you're done. But Yahweh, Psalm 116, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is Merciful. In fact, mercy and justice are so at the core of his name that there's this event in the Old Testament. It's kind of the the high point of the revelation of who God is. Before we get to Jesus, Moses wants to see God's glory. And God says, you can't see my face and live, so here's what I'll do. I'll pass before you, Moses, and I'll declare to you my name. I'll declare to you my character. I'll tell you who I am, which is an incredible event. That God isn't some mystery. He wants us to read the tea leaves or look into a crystal ball to kind of guess who he is. He says, I'll come down and tell you who I am. And he says this in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping covenant love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. We see right there at the core of God's name is he's merciful. The first thing that's listed, but then keep reading. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So he's merciful, but don't misunderstand that as if he doesn't take wretched sins seriously. If he is just merciful, he's then an unjust judge, which if you've ever experienced incredible injustice, there's nothing you long for more than just judges. But Jesus, or God isn't just merciful, he's also just. I will by no means cleanse the guilty. So it's right at his heart. So as we look at this, when we see his mercy, we'll also get a glimpse into his love and his compassion and his unbelievable patience with sinful man. But we'll also get a glimpse into his, as we look at his justice, into his holiness, into his righteousness, not just his stodgy moralness. Unfortunately, that's what we think of when we hear the word holy, but his glorious magnitude, his beautiful perfections as we look at his justice. So we're learning who our God is as we trace this theme. So with that as our foundation, let's actually begin to trace the theme. Let's look at creation and the fall. It's difficult uh, to see justice and mercy in the perfect garden creation because in a sense, there's no need for justice or mercy Right? You have no injustice yet. So you've got no need for courts and justice because there's been no sin yet. And you've got no need for mercy yet because there's no mercy or no sin to be pardoned yet. You could, if you wanted to, look at uh, creation itself as a mercy. God doesn't need to create. He doesn't need anything from us. He does it just out of his love and his mercy. And you could look at creation itself as just creation. Right? There's no injustice. It's a place of Justice. So that's Adam and Eve in the garden. There's just peace. There's equity. Good and evil are very clearly defined. They're set up to live in this garden kingdom forever and reflect God's heart as they obey him, as they follow his laws and walk out justice. But again, you know what happens. They don't. The one law that there is, they break. They pluck the fruit that they're not meant to eat and they take a bite of it and in so doing declare, I don't trust you to be God. I want to be God I don't trust you to say what is good and what is evil. I actually am going to be the one who determines what is good and what is evil. And when they do, instantly, injustice, as the one law that exists is broken, injustice floods into the world. And now, from Genesis 3, for the rest of the scriptures, there's a big problem. What is God going to do? How is God going to react to sinful man, because if he's going to remain just, he must punish sin. Again, if he doesn't, he's an unjust judge. He takes the highest offense possible, sin against the holy God, lightly. And he would not be God if he were not just. He must, pun must punish sin. In fact, because he's so infinitely holy, we need to realize this. If you really wrestle with the idea of hell, one of the things that's going to help you grasp that, not become like happy about it, but help you grasp it more is understanding God's holiness. Go study the infinite majesty of your God 
Then, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who gets a glimpse of the fringes of God's garments, you'll fall on your face and say, I am wicked before this holy God. And punishment for sin will begin to make sense when you get a glimpse of the holiness of your God. And that God is this holy, and therefore he must punish sin. One sin, one against the holy God is worthy of infinite punishment because he is infinitely holy. And the unfortunate news for us is we have committed a few more than one. He's just, but he's also merciful. If he just punishes sin completely, if he wipes us out like he could and be just, he wouldn't be merciful. He wouldn't have pardoned anybody. And so what is God going to do? And that's what we'll see unfold throughout the scriptures. How are these two things that seem contradictory going to play out? And so with Adam and Eve in particular, we see both. We see justice. We see God does punish them for their sin. He he pours out the curses. Uh, They're meant to fill the earth with children, with offspring, and now that's going to be painful. Eve, sorry. Having kids, childbirth will be painful, and Adam was meant to cultivate the garden, fill the earth, and subdue it. And now instead of glorious garden fruit coming from the ground, thorns and thistles are going to come from the ground. And sweat is going to come from your brow. And so there's, there are curses and they're ultimately they're sent out of the garden and ultimately they will die. You were taken from the dirt, you were molded from the dirt, and you will one day go back to the dirt. You will one day die. So there is punishment for sin. God's justice is being displayed, but if you read carefully, there's also incredible mercy. They don't die instantly, which is actually what had been told them. The day you eat of the fruit, you will die. That's not what happens. Adam lives for like another 900 years. They don't die instantly. There's a mercy. God clothes them in their nakedness. They realize that they're naked. They go throw together some fig leaves to try and cover up their shame. And eventually those are taken away and God actually clothes them in their nakedness. That's mercy. They've just offended him infinitely and he takes time to clothe them in their shame. The punishment they get of pain and childbirth and thorns and thistles is nowhere near the degree of the offense that they've done. So there's mercy there. And then the ultimate mercy is in Genesis 3.15 where God promises one day The ultimate justice will be poured out not on them, but on the serpent. As someone will come who will crush the head of the serpent. And so you see these two things, mercy and justice, kind of working side by side. You see that there is punishment for sin. There's just punishment for sin. But there's also mercy in the midst of the judgment, which this is something we're going to see all throughout the scriptures. Let me just give you a couple more examples if you were to follow the storyline just to show you how these these kind of work side by side, God's justice and mercy. So take, for instance, you read the next story, Cain in Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel, and so God justly punishes Cain. He's gonna go, he's gonna wander, but then Cain cries out, I'm gonna die. People are gonna kill me if they find me. And God says, no, they won't. I'll put a mark on you and you'll live. So you see both of those things. You see just punishment, God isn't just saying, you killed Abel, his blood is crying out to me from the ground, but it's okay. There's punishment for killing his brother, but there's also mercy. God mercifully marks Cain as he goes into the world or take the flood. In Genesis 6, mankind is 
unbelievably wicked. In fact, let me read this for you. This is, I can't think of a more uh, packed sentence of the wickedness of man, the Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. (laughs) Every thought that passed through man's mind was only evil all the time. That's a packed summary statement for how wicked the world has gotten. So God justly punishes the world by sending the flood. I love you. Don't decorate your kids with Noah's Ark. It is a story of God killing everyone except eight because of their wicked sin. Not happy drafts. It's going to be real awkward if I come over for dinner. It's fine. I mean, you could do it, I guess. But you're missing the point of the story. Uh, God's justice is being poured out over the whole world. But there's also mercy. He saves eight people. He saves Noah and his family. There's also mercy in the rainbow. God promises, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to destroy the world until a redeemer can come. The Genesis 3.15 redeemer can come and redeem and crush the head of the serpent. So you see, again, those two things happening side by side. God's justice and God's mercy being displayed. We're going to see that all throughout the scriptures. But... If you know, as you know, we've been uh, continuing through this story. The main way God is going to bring about redemption of the world is through Abraham and his family. And so God calls Abraham, again, a merciful act, uh, to come and through Abraham, through Abraham's family, all the nations are going to be blessed. All the nations are going to be redeemed and brought back to the garden. So notice just the act of initiating a covenant, a relationship with sinful man is an incredible act of mercy. God is the one who's been offended. God is the one who's been sinned against and he goes to the offenders and says, I wanna bless you with my presence and my nearness. I want you to be my people and I want you to be, I want to be your God. He doesn't go to them and say, hey, you only sin all the time. No one does good, no not one. So here's perfect justice forever. An unbelievable act of mercy, he says. I'm going to overlook your offenses and enter into covenant with you. And that's what he does with Abraham. And the people he enters into covenant with that are meant to be his people are meant to reflect his heart, his heart of justice and mercy. Look at Genesis 18. This is speaking of Abraham. This is as God is about to go to uh, wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, something Lee's going to talk about today in his sermon. Genesis 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham will surely be a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So notice this. God isn't just the morality police and therefore wants his people to be moral. God is infinitely just and merciful. And so people who are meant to be his people are meant to display his heart. And so he's just said for Abraham, I've chosen him, huge act of mercy, so that he might walk in my ways and he might do justice in the unjust world that has rebelled against me. This man might reflect me by doing justice. You see that? So God's people are meant to reflect his heart. So Abraham and also Israel, Abraham's family, one of the things that the kings of Israel are commanded to do is do justice, issue justice throughout the kingdom of Israel and show mercy 
to the sojourner, show mercy to the less fortunate, as the same way God is the father to the fatherless and the protector of widows, so the kings of Israel are meant to take those who are on the margins, the forgotten, the rejected, and bring them in and show mercy to them. And so God enters into covenant with Abraham. He eventually enters into covenant with Abraham's family, the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we see this, this covenant of mercy with his people. We see in, in the Mosaic covenant, there's just laws. Look at Deuteronomy 16. So God is establishing the nation of Israel before they go and take the promised land because they're a nation that's meant to reflect his heart. And he says this, uh, Deuteronomy 16, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Couldn't be any clearer than that. You, nation of Israel, the nation of the living God, will be just. There will be no bribes. There will be no partiality in the nation because there's no bribes and partiality in the heart of the living God. There's only perfect justice. You see just laws, but then you see also an incredibly merciful sacrificial system. God wants to dwell with his people. And the only way for a holy God and a sinful people to dwell together without the sinful people dying is atonement needs to be made for their sin. Their sin needs to be paid for somehow. And so in Leviticus, and some in Exodus and some in Numbers, you see God setting up the incredibly merciful sacrificial system where God's people sin, but their sins will be paid for by taking a lamb and putting it on the altar and killing it. And the sins of the nation on the day of atonement, the high priest will take a lamb, go into the holy of holies and kill it for the sake of the nation and they'll take a scapegoat and he'll proclaim the sins of the nations on the scapegoat and send it out into the wilderness to symbolize their sins being paid for by being poured out on animals. Also that God might dwell in their midst, a holy God without them dying. Now, let me just jump ahead and give you a little preview. This is always meant to be a temporary pushing back. Romans 3 talks about uh, God overlooking former sins. Hebrew makes very clear the blood of bulls and goats is not actually paying for their sin. It's pushing back the punishment. It's not, it's not changing their heart. It's temporarily pushing back God's justice. But you see the mercy in it. God dwelling with his people. In fact, the, the seat where the, on the Day of Atonement the, the animal would be slain was called the mercy seat. So you see, again, justice and mercy in the very DNA in the covenant of Israel is, is woven in there. Just laws, follow justice because your God is just, and God's going to dwell with you incredibly mercifully. So you see those playing side by side. So why is that so important for Israel? Why are these two things so important for Israel? Again, not to sound redundant, they're so important. This is at the very heart of the covenant, justice and mercy, because mercy and justice are so near to the heart of God. I imagine many of you are somewhere progressing in your Bible reading plans, and if you've hit the Psalms or the Proverbs or the Prophets, maybe the thing that has yelled the loudest is God's justice for the poor and his care 
for the sojourner. Let me just read you a couple. Again, I've saturated you with this. We see God's care for the forgotten and the outcast. Psalm 10. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 68. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solidarity in a home. He leads out the prisoner to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Proverbs 14, notice this. Whoever oppresses the poor, the poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Jonah 4, I love this. So if you know the story of Jonah, famous for being swallowed by the whale, but he's running. He, he's told to go tell Nineveh to repent, this enemy nation, Assyria, that's actually oppressed Israel. God tells an Israelite prophet to go tell them to repent so that they might repent and I might show them mercy. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. He's fleeing not because he's scared of the Ninevites. He's fleeing because he doesn't want them to receive God's mercy. And he runs and he boards the ship and there's a storm, gets swallowed by the whale, he gets spit out, he finally obeys God. He says a few words and all of Nineveh repents and God shows them mercy for their repentance and Jonah says this. Look at how well Jonah knows the character of his God. Jonah 4, and he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made a haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So no, or Jonah, so upset at God's mercy, he says, go ahead and kill me, throwing a fit but he knows the heart of God. I ran away because I didn't want my enemies to receive your mercy. And I know who you are. And I knew if they repented, you would show them mercy. Nineveh, which if you read the history books, is probably the most wicked city imaginable. I mean, the, the horrible wickedness they would have. Well, it's too graphic. Anyway, God shows mercy to the most wicked because it's so near to his Heart. In fact, God's people, one of the primary reasons for our praising God is his mercy and his justice. Psalm 146, praise the Lord, praise the Lord of my soul. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed who gives food to the hungry and sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. So in the same way that Israel praises him for being the creator of the universe, they praise him for his justice, that he gives justice to the oppressed. So back to Israel's story. Again, that's the heart of God that's meant to be the heart of Israel as he's establishing this covenant with them. God, yes, cares about sin. And we have the, the sin problem of justice and mercy. How is he going to deal with sin? But he also cares about the justice and mercy in the streets. The fatherless, the orphan, the one who has no one to take care of them. God is their father. The widow, 
the one who's lost, the one that primarily takes care of them, God is her protector. You see that. And therefore, Israel must look the same. And there is a high point of Israel where they begin to take the land and they have a kind of low point in Judges. But then David eventually becomes king. And when David becomes king, we see this beautiful summary statement in 2 Samuel 8. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all people. So there it is, Israel being who they were meant to be with the man after God's own heart on the throne. And what's he doing? What's the, what's the way that the Bible describes Israel's faithfulness? David administers justice. There's no imbalance scales, but unfortunately, as is common with the scriptures, it doesn't last long at all. In fact, it doesn't even make it to the end of David's life before there's rampant injustice in his family that he does not handle well. David ends his life by trusting in his own strengths and counting how many soldiers he has rather than trusting in the Lord. And then you could say, there's a bit of a generalization, but all of Israel's story post-David is a story that is primarily about injustice and lack of mercy. In fact, it's, it's hard to find a thing other than idolatry. It's hard to find a thing that God is angrier about with Israel than their injustice. The kings are unbelievably wicked and do take bribes and do show partiality. The priests take bribes. There's unbalanced scales. The poor is constantly exploited. Look at some of these summary statements in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 1. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and run after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Notice how God keeps going back to the fatherless and the widow. He's going to the weakest. He's going to those that have no one to fight for them. The king is the one that's meant to fight for them and instead he's exploiting them. Jeremiah 5 Run to and fro the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares and see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seek truth, that I may pardon her. And the whole idea there is you won't find one. It's meant to parallel Sodom and Gomorrah. What if there's 10 righteous in the city? Will you still destroy? I won't destroy if there's 10. Okay, what if there's five? What if there's four? What if there's, th right? You keep going down. There, there's none. No one's doing justice. That is the story of Israel post-David, and it is constantly what the Lord is highlighting, even, even when they're worshiping God, even when they're doing all the sacrifices, they're following all the very detailed Levitical systems of take two turtle doves if you're too poor to buy a lamb and kill them this way, even when they're sacrificing rightly, even when they're worshiping God rightly, but there is injustice. This is what God says, Amos 5. I hate, listen to the strength of the God of the universe talking to Israel's injustice. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You're gathering to worship me and I hate it because there's injustice. Verse 22, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But, here's what I want, God says, but let justice roll 
like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah 6. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Sacrifices. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sins of the soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? On and on we could go. So you see, even when worship is right, when they're following the rules, when they've got the right morals, they're exploiting the poor and God says, I'm doing this when you sing to me. I'm doing this when the incense of your sacrifices rise up to me. Here's what I want you to do, justice. And I want you to show mercy, then sacrifice. But all that's coming up to me when there's no justice and there's no mercy is the smell of your hypocrisy. So quit. I've told you what to do, do justice. Love kindness, walk humbly before the Lord. Continuing, when the prophets show up. By the way, the way your scriptures are are structured, when you get to the prophets, the prophets are men that God calls to show up to sinful Israel and simply say this, remember the covenant. Remember the law that he gave you at the foot of Mount Sinai. Remember those Deuteronomy promises. He said, do justice, right? Take no bribe. The, The prophets are simply showing up as preachers of saying, go back to the word. Go back to the scriptures. Remember who your God is. Stop worshiping these false idols. And as we see with this theme, stop doing injustice. Jeremiah 22, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, there they are again, who shed innocent or nor shed innocent blood in this Place Isaiah 1, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's case. The prophet's showing up and saying, yes, stop worshiping idols. They do say that a lot. They also say, stop oppressing the weak. Stop exploiting the ones you should be showing mercy to. Stop taking bribes. Remember who your God is and remember the covenant that he's brought you to. And after God's unbelievable patience, you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, just have the thought in your mind, why is God being so patient? Why is God letting wicked generation after wicked generation after wicked generation do this? And that in and of itself is a mercy. God is merciful for generations and generations. And then finally, he brings justice because of Israel's injustice. They are eventually taken out of the promised land by Babylon. And we see things like this in Lamentations 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. His wrath has been broken down, has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He is brought down to the ground in dishonor of the kingdoms and its rulers. So as a result of Israel's injustice, God pours out his justice. Mercy takes the back seat after it had been in the front seat and justice comes and they're taken out of the land. But... In the same way Adam and Eve are taken out of the garden, 
And Genesis 3.15 shows up to say there will be mercy that wins the day. So the prophets, as they're calling people back to the law, also proclaim mercy that will come. God will bring mercy and one day it will ultimately come through the Genesis 3.15 Messiah. Someone will come who will sit on the throne forever and distribute, like David did, perfect justice forever. Not just for a quick time. Perfect justice forever. And he will show mercy. Jeremiah, I've got a whole bunch there for you. I'll just read a few. Jeremiah 3 Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, fatherless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Isaiah 9, speaking of the Messiah, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice. And with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 42, one more. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed. Look at these descriptions of mercy. See that he'll bring justice and then look at these descriptions of mercy that will characterize the Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So there's the promises which... Unless this is your first week, you know, it's ultimately going to be about Jesus. What's he going to do when he shows up? He's going to remove all this injustice that's rampant throughout the streets. And he's also going to be unbelievably merciful, a bruised reed he is not going to break. And when Jesus shows up, when you turn the sad pages of your Old Testament to the glorious pages of your New Testament, you see Jesus showing up and he, like God's children, were meant to beautifully, perfectly reflects God's heart of mercy and justice. Jesus is unbelievably just. Zeal for the Lord's house consumes him. He flips the tables when the poor are being exploited in the temple. He gets in the face of the unjust religious leaders, just like the prophets did. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters, Jesus? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Why is Jesus mad at the Pharisees? Why does he get in their face? They don't do justice, and they don't show mercy as leaders of God's people are meant to. So Jesus shows up and is very just, is getting in the face of the unjust. And then as we've seen, if you've been with us as we've walked through Matthew, he is the greatest display of God's mercy. I mean, how gentle and how lowly, as we will see next week. He goes after the poor. He doesn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. He heals the hurting, those who are on the fringes of society, the leper who no one wants to be around, that would have to literally remove themselves from society and declare unclean for the rest of their life. He goes after and he heals. He quotes in Matthew 9, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. What are the blind beggars constantly yelling out when they hear Jesus walking by? Son of David, have mercy on me. They know who he is. He's the perfect display of God's mercy. And in fact, Hebrews even says, he came down, he took on flesh in the incarnation, Ephesians 2, so that he could become merciful to us. The whole point of the incarnation is so that he might display the Lord's mercy. Now, we still have the main problem we've had since Genesis 3. Jesus is showing up and he's healing the uh, mercy, mercilessness and the injustice in the streets, but we still have the main problem of the eternal justice that needs to be poured out on every sinner in order for God to be perfectly just. And we still have the problem of the mercy that needs to be poured out so that God and man might be reconciled. Neither of those things has been poured out perfectly in the scriptures yet. And in fact, when you think about it, how do those things even coexist? It almost looks like God has to make a choice. He either perfectly pours out his justice. Sin is punished completely. There's not one smidge of injustice left. There's not one sin left unpunished where I could be accused, God could be accused of not being perfectly just. But then how would he be merciful? And then the other way, he pours out his mercy and he forgives all of us. He reconciles, says, come back to the garden and be with me, but then how would he be just? Sin would just be not that big of a deal and he would be an unjust judge. How can those two things exist perfectly and totally together? There's only one way. It's the cross. When the perfect son of the living God goes on the cross, and every drop of the cup of God's just wrath is poured out not on you and not on me, but on him so that God can say sin has been completely paid for. Sin will not go unpunished. God will not be accused of being unjust and it's punished on the cross. Your sin and my sin are punished on the cross where God is perfectly just and his justice is perfectly satisfied to where you could be justified. There's justice. What about mercy? Because God has poured out every drop of his perfect justice on his son, he can now pour out every drop of his mercy on you and say, I'm not just closing my eyes to sin. I had my eyes wide open as I poured out my eternal wrath on my son. Sin has been paid for, and now you can see his eternal mercy poured out on you. You see that. The only way God can be truly, fully, and forever just and merciful is on the cross. His justice is wonderfully satisfied. And now his mercy, with nothing holding back, not one bit of his mercy being held back, is poured out on you because his justice was poured out on him. Do you see that? Do you see the glories of the gospel? 
Do you see how the gospel is the only answer to all of our problems and the only source of all of our joy? Please see that. Please see the wonders of the cross. Please see the glorious heart of your God that would do that for you. For God so loved the world, he gave his son to step in your place and to take his just wrath so that you might have nothing but his perfect mercy. The glory of our justification by faith is that we are justified. God looks at us and sees no spot, no wrinkle because we've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus because he has taken all of our sin. Romans 3, I won't read that for the sake of time. Look at the Spurgeon quote. Wonder ye heavens, be astonished, O earth, the very justice which stood in the sinner's way and prevented his being pardoned has been by the gospel of Christ appeased. By the rich atonement offered upon Calvary, justice is satisfied. It has sheathed its sword and now not a word to say against the pardon of the penitent. God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful only in the cross. So you're justified and then now, 1 Peter 2, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy at the foot of the cross. We sing, I'm jumping ahead for the sake of time, we sing, uh, one of the songs we sing is Rock of Ages. Uh, and there's a line in there, we just sang it as a staff, we sing and pray before staff meetings, we sang it this past week. And I was studying for this lesson, this line just obviously jumped off the page at me. Rock of Ages, it is done, you cried, the curtain torn, and I see justice satisfied. Now write your mercy on my heart and hands. Rock of ages, in faith I stand. The ultimate display of God's justice and his mercy is on the cross. And our glory of the gospel is on the cross. And so he has redeemed us by the blood of the cross. We have nothing but God's mercy. And so now we as his people are those who have been saved by mercy. Ephesians 2, one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, lists all the wretchedness of our being, by our very nature, children of wrath. And then there are these two glorious words, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive in Christ. Mercy is at the very core of our salvation. And as a result, we're meant to be a people who praise him for his mercy. Look at Romans 11, Paul talking about God's mercy and then he just breaks out into praise, writing a doxology, a praise to God for his mercy. And then also like Israel, except infinitely more so, we are meant to be a people who reflect God's heart of justice and mercy. We have received mercy and therefore we give mercy. Luke 6 be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Stories like the Good Samaritan. Beatitudes like Matthew 5, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The church is meant to be a place where mercy is very prevalent and justice is sure. One of the reasons why uh, that we don't like the prosperity gospel isn't just because it's wrong and leads people away from Jesus. That is a big reason why we don't like it. It's a false gospel that leads people to hell. But... It's also the very definition of exploiting the poor. 
The rich people who spew the lie of the prosperity gospel is saying, give me your money so that God will bless you, which is a lie and it's also direct in the church exploitation of the poor, injustice. So we clear the church of any of that nonsense because we want justice, we want balanced scales in the church and we also show mercy, we forgive, we lay down our lives, we watch one another's feet, we consider others better than ourselves. When someone sins against you and you forgive, you're taking on the pain of that wrongdoing and you're mercifully saying, you don't owe me anything. You don't need to pay me retribution for this. I forgive you. I love you. And you're absorbing that pain mercifully. That's the norm because we've been shown great mercy. And then in our relation to the world, we're meant to just be a people that exude mercy and justice. If you study the history of the church, you will see the church, particularly by pursuing justice uh, and pursuing mercy, has shaped a lot of our modern world. In fact, uh, there's two books in your recommended resources, The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener and Dominion by Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, uh, but the church historian. Uh, who, the, the whole books are Christianity, whether you like it or not, has shaped the Western world. In fact, I don't think Tom Holland's even a Christian, uh, but showing how it was Christians when Rome would just discard unwanted babies outside the street. It's Christians who would go and pick them up and adopt them into their family. They saw an injustice and they said, by no means. My king has adopted me when I was cast out and I will adopt these children. When there was plagues, Christians would dive in. Hospitals have their origins in Christian deacons caring for those who are sick when they had no one to care for them. Slavery has its uh, roots in Christian intervention. Gregory of Nyssa, who's a fourth century church father, as far as we can tell, is the first person who argued slavery should be abolished because these are men and women made in the image of God. William Wilberforce, uh, David Livingston, on and on I could go, Christians influencing stopping the slave trade. Why? Because they, they, they know God's burning heart to eradicate injustice. So that's who we're meant to be, a people where in the church... Mercy thrives, there's no room for injustice. And then we just have this kind of disposition towards the world that when you see injustice, it, it, it turns you a little bit where you wanna go meet it with the glories of the gospel because you know the heart of your father who cares for the fatherless and protects the widow. And in eternity, closing the biblical theology storyline, in eternity we will see A, justice fully poured out. Jonathan Edwards said, every sin in the world will be fully and completely paid for, either in hell eternally or on the cross. Justice will be done, either in hell or on the cross. And then as we have every tear wiped away and every pain taken away and stare eternally into the face of our merciful savior, we walk into the doors of eternal mercy where we know we're not here because of our merit, we're here because of his, and he showed us mercy. So a couple application points, and then maybe we'll have time for a few, few questions. I'm working in concentric circles. I would say devotional life first, meditate on this. I mean this. Wake up early, get coffee, get tea, whatever you drink, go into your room, get a journal and your Bible, and read Ephesians 2. Read passages, read one of the billion I have in these notes and read them slowly and respond to your God and saying, this is me and this is you. I gave you rebellion and you gave me mercy. 
you gave wrath to your son justly so that you could be justified or so that I could be justified. Meditate on this. Spend time with the Lord. Don't just let this be another random theme. Oh, good, I learned, you know, theme 16, a theological equipping class. Let this change your soul because you go before your Lord. Second thing in the devotional life category, when you sin, run to your merciful Savior knowing that sin has been paid for on the cross. Don't forget the gospel and run away from him as if you need to earn your way back into his favor. He earned your favor eternally with him. Sprint to him like David in Psalm 51. Be merciful to me, O God, knowing that he is. Go before him with these themes in your devotional life. Number two, in the church life, let this place be a place where mercy just grows like the glorious garden. When you are sinned against, when people offend you, respond in mercy. Like Paul, when reviled, we bless. Take the offense on yourself and show mercy. Also do acts of mercy. One of the, one of the main ways deacons have functioned historically is, is something that's often called mercy ministries. That is what's starting the hospitals, right? In the ancient world, things like that. Paul talks about in Romans 12, when you do acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness, Right. Be merciful with your hospitality. Be merciful with your finances. Be merciful in just how you treat one another. Let that be something that is a thriving piece of our church. Eradicate injustice again. If, if the prosperity gospel does creep in, we rail against it every week. So it'd be hard for it to do that. But when you see injustice, go stomp it out. It has no place in the church of God and in the world. This is tricky in our day because... There's things the church has historically done that now the government also does. This is obviously super hotly debated in our day because there's things that cries for justice that aren't actually injustice. And there's a lot of tribalism in our day, so it's very difficult. But let me just encourage you when it comes to doing justice in the public square, biblical justice, let me encourage you. Do not let abuse make you indifferent. And certainly don't let it make you cynical. Don't let someone's False idea of justice make you say, I just won't focus on this because I only see woke abuses or something like that. Have this disposition. When you see injustices, you want to go meet them and be merciful in them. Be wise. Read books like When Helping Hurts, right? Be wise in how you do it. But again, God's heart for justice and mercy has not changed. And so have that sort of disposition and then last thing I would say, by the way, sorry, before I say the last thing, a lot of these resources I have for you, I have, in those two, I have two categories. One is that how has the church marked the Western world through particularly pursuing justice and mercy in society? That's just more informational. The second thing uh, is just ways to help you think about that. Uh, books on how do, you, do I actually engage when there's all these you know, landmines in our world and everybody seems like if I take this step, this crew gets mad at me and if I go over here, this crew gets mad at me. So I'm just gonna stay right here and just pretend I'm not in this fight, right? This is to help you kind of engage. I think those are faithful, uh, faithful directions. Don't necessarily agree with 100% of everything, but that is true of everything. <laughs> There's no book besides the Bible that I agree 100% with. So read it discerningly. And then lastly, last practical thing, long for eternity, where there will be this perfect justice and mercy. Something that should be the cry of your heart when you see a school shooting and when you see just horribleness of our world is come, Lord, quickly. 
That should be your prayerful response when you see injustice in the world. Have this good longing. Love his appearing. Want him to come back and bring perfect justice in the world and show glorious mercy forever. Let me pray and then we'll go a little bit over, but we'll, we'll answer some questions. Father, we love you. We pray that you would do this in our hearts. We pray that we would see who you are. We would see what you care about and that we'd be wise. It is frustrating to me just as a teacher that I know everyone in this room has, I don't know, 20 voices screaming about how the other one is like the devil's secret agent to destroy the church and things like that. It's, it's just frustrating. Our loud, angry, cynical day. But I pray that you would not allow the loud voices to rob us of your voice and that we would long to be faithful and that this would be a place of justice and mercy and that would just kind of exude out of our hearts because we've been shown unbelievable mercy as your son has been shown the justice that we deserve. So we love you and, and pray that you would form us uh, biblically, that we would do this faithfully for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Pray in your son's name, amen.